Well, hopefully, this past week has been an encouragement to you. As uh, we celebrated last week our one an- first year anniversary as Redemption Hill Church, my hope is that, um, that you've taken some time to just reflect on that and continue in, in celebration, celebration of what God has done as he joins his, his body together in Christ. And the truth is, is that what we have seen through that has been God's miraculous presence in bringing the body of Christ together and functioning locally as one united body. Bound together, not in personality or in uh, demographics or in similarity necessarily by uh, the characteristics that we carry in our life, but bound together by Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the great unifier for our life. Well, this morning we're going to begin a, a series in the book of First Samuel, and I, I want to just kind of ask you that question just to think about, and have you ever gone through a period in your life where you experienced what seemed to just be a, a period of, uh, kind of a, a dark period, uh, a period where hope seemed to be fleeting? Have you had times where you felt somewhat bewildered and confused by God's seeming inaction? Often in those times when we feel that time, that sense of lack of hopeless or hopefulness, and we're feeling somewhat hopeless, times where we are praying and we're seeking God, and yet there just seems to be no action, no change. The truth is, is that God's presence can often feel far away, can feel distant, and it can, be feel, it can feel sometimes as if we've, we've been left alone, even if we understand that we haven't. Well, this morning as we dive into to 1 Samuel, we're going to start this morning and immediately encounter a woman named Hannah grieving and crying out to the Lord in the midst of her affliction. And although she doesn't see it in the moment, God's working, and truthfully, his blessing is near. You see, because he's sovereign and faithful, his people can confidently know that they've not been forgotten and go before God trusting in his unforeseen care. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So let's go ahead and stand together. We're going to be reading from 1 Samuel. We're going to be starting in verse 1. We're going to go through the entire chapter there, through verse 28. And I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to read along. And if you don't, it's okay. It's going to be up on the screen. I just want you to to listen to this passage. This is what it says. There was a certain man of Ramathene Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from the city to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, 
his wife, to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And a rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh. And Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you may have made that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away, went her way, and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house wept, went up to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever." Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull and an ephah flower and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I've lent him to the Lord, and as long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for your faithfulness and for your sovereignty. Father, thank you for your goodness. God, as we come before you as Redemption Hill Church, Lord God, may we completely embrace the love that you have for us. 
the grace that you have done through the work of the cross that you continue to demonstrate every day of our lives. Father, may we come to you not in our own strength, but in your strength. Lord God, this morning, may you wipe away our sense of self-sufficiency and may we see that we are only sufficient because of you. May our strength be renewed in you this morning. May we be encouraged in the power of your word and may your spirit work and teach Instruct where needed rebuke and where needed encourage our souls this morning. And we ask this in your name. Amen. God's sovereign, faithful care for his people enables us to prayerfully seek him amidst our affliction and joyfully embrace his unforeseen blessings. God's sovereign, faithful care for his people enables us to prayerfully seek him amidst our affliction and joyfully embrace his unforeseen blessings. Because of God's sovereign and faithful care, it is because of that that we can go to him. It's because of that that we can go to him in prayer, and it's because of that that we can embrace the unforeseen blessing that God brings. Now, 1 Samuel was written somewhere between 1050 and 950 B.C., Samuel probably had a part of that authorship, in fact, we know that he did. But because of the story of Samuel, we know that he could not have completed 1st and 2nd Samuel. And so, the interesting thing is it takes place in a time period where Israel has been brought, or the nation of Israel has been brought into the promised land, and there are judges that are now, that are beginning to deal with specific situations amongst the people and providing leadership to the nation when situations arise. However, Judges tells us, the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, at the very end, tells us this. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so the people, the nation of Israel, was a nation that was floundering. Floundering spiritually. Everybody was kind of left to their own Device. In fact, we know from 1 Samuel chapter 3 that it, there was a period of time, it had been years since the people of, of Israel had really heard the voice of God. And so Samuel is a book that brings in this prophetic age of Samuel coming as the, the prophets, as the ones that are heralding God's word. It's also the time that we begin to see God's anointed king being provided to the nation of Israel the precursor of the true anointed king in Christ to come and save his people, to redeem his people. And so as we move forward this morning, it's important to note here that it starts with, it says there was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim. 
Now, what is interesting in this part of the passage is you'll notice that Elkanah is referred to as the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. Now, immediately, right at the get-go, Elkanah is having some level of value that's being attributed to him. And that value that's actually being attributed to him is as a son. In fact, he's the son of an Ephrathite, Ephrathite being essentially Bethlehem. And so what we begin to see is that really the value that has been given here to Elkanah is really in his sonship. Because the idea here is that Elkanah is really a relatively unknown man. He's just from a regular old town in the nation of Israel. And that's what he's saying. This guy is from no great specific heritage. If you were looking for an NBA basketball player, you would say he has no LeBron James as a dad, no Michael Jordan as a dad. He doesn't have great coaches. He's just the average guy. But here's how God begins to work. It says then that he has two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. The, the structure of the passage actually implies that Hannah is the first wife and Peninnah is the second wife. What's interesting about that is there's a very good chance here that, as you can imagine, Hannah was desiring to have children as well. And we know that from this passage, that was her desire. And Peninnah was able to have children. And so it says here that they would go up yearly to worship in Shiloh. Now, what was unique about this passage, or what's unique about that statement, is that as they go up, they're in a land where everybody's kind of doing what is right in their own eyes. So Elkanah is a man of God in the midst of a culture that is turning their hearts and minds away from God. And he continues to lead his family up to Shiloh every single year. And it says here, to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. The Lord of hosts. It's the first time that we, we see this, the Lord of hosts being spoken of in this way. And it, it refers to the idea that God is sovereign. And so they're going to go up and they're going to worship the sovereign God. And so they go up to Shiloh to worship in a place and in a nation where people have turned their hearts away from God. They go up. And it says that on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah's wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Now here's what's interesting in this. Right off the get-go, we see two things at work. We see that Elkanah is providing a double portion to Hannah because he loves her. And because of his love for her, you can imagine in that moment that Peninnah begins to rise up in jealousy. The second thing we can see here is that God has closed her womb. We need to make a distinction. God is not the creator 
of evil. And too often we ascribe suffering as evil. But there are things that God does bring about in our lives, such as we see with Hannah, where he closes her womb for his purpose. For his purpose. And it's too easy sometimes to say that God just allows this. No, God actually brings it on. And so God, in his sovereignty and in his wisdom, actually is bringing this on. And it's important that we understand that. Because not everything that we think in this life that is bad that is happening to us is a result of evil. Much of it is a result of God working out his plan and his will in our life. And so it says here that her womb was closed. And as a result of this, her womb is closed. And it says here that in verse 6, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Now think about this for a moment. They're going up to Shiloh to worship. They're getting a bit sidetracked, right? Their focus is no longer on worshiping God, but their focus becomes on this issue of of having children or not having children, and one wife begins to provoke the other wife grievously to irritate her. This is an intentional effort to make her mad. It's the old adage, if you poke the bear, it's going to bite, right? Don't be surprised when it does. In her case, She's poking and she's poking and she's poking and it's, it's causing her to go even more into this sorrow, into this devastation. And so it says that this battle ensues year after year after year that they go up. It says, as often as she went to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. She wouldn't participate in the sacrificial meal. It says here that in Elkanah, her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, i got to be honest with you. This is a pretty foolish and common mistake. Right? You, you, you ought to just get over that. Am I not enough for you? Seriously, like what are you actually fretting about? Is this life not enough? I mean, seriously, what I'm giving, can't we just be happy like this? Right? Uh, You can picture, even as a husband, Elkanah saying this to Hannah. But it's not just husbands that do that to wives. It's wives that do that to husbands, but it's people do it to people. They try to, to diminish that hurt and that sorrow by simply focusing back on that which is earthly. That which is temporary, that which is temporal. But notice what Hannah does here. Hannah says here that after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now either the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Here's what happens. She goes to the tabernacle, the house of prayer, There's something that Hannah uniquely realizes here. 
that the only one that can satisfy her desire, the only one that can fix what's going on, the only one that can deal with the issues, concerns, and brokenness of her heart is God. No man is going to solve this problem, no situation, no circumstance is going to resolve this problem. The only one that is going to resolve this problem is God. See, Hannah doesn't find her satisfaction in Elkanah, but she finds it in God. Now, it's important that they were going to serve the God, the Lord of hosts. And Hannah believed this. The reason that Hannah was able to go to God in the midst of her sorrow was because she believed that God was completely sovereign and faithful. Completely sovereign and faithful. If we don't believe that God is sovereign, we're not going to bring our petitions to him. If we don't believe that God is faithful, we're not going to bring our petitions to him. Now notice it says here that she came greatly distressed. Her soul was stirred. But even more than that, it said that she wept bitterly. Listen. This is an example of being angry but not sitting in your anger. What does she do? This is not saying that she's not angry. This is saying that she is angry but she is going to the Lord. She's going to him because he's sovereign, that he's trustworthy. And she's laying it out before him. This is where my heart is broken and God, I am angry. It's a dark moment. I was talking with a friend last night, a a man that's been a tremendous encouragement to me for the last 11 years. He was in a severe accident about a year and a half ago. And it was the first time I saw him face to face. His nose was different. His eyes were stuck open as his face has been rebuilt. And we began talking about those dark days. And he said, Tim, I I, I didn't lose my faith, but I was bewildered and confused as to where God was. That's where we can be at times, and you can imagine that's where she's at. She's bewildered and confused because God doesn't seem to be answering the way that she's desiring, and she's not saying, you owe this to me, God, but she's saying, God, I'm being faithful. Why is this not occurring? And her heart is in agony. Well, notice what happens here. When she begins to pray, it says, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts. See, because of God's sovereign and faithful care for his people, in in the midst of affliction, there are a few things here about God. The first is that God desires us to come to him in prayer. When we're in the midst of affliction, God desires us to come to him in prayer. It says here that she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. 
Now notice a few elements about this prayer. She, she doesn't come demanding of God. God, you, you need to do this right now. My faithfulness, I've been faithful, do it now. You owe it to me, Lord. And we can get that way. We can actually see that, or believe that God's answered prayer is simply a reward for our good work. And it's not that. In fact, she begins this prayer by first acknowledging God's sovereignty. She's not coming testing God. She's not saying, God, guess what? Do this and I'll believe in you. She's saying, if you do this, I will give the son to you. It's simply a vow. It's simply a commitment with a forward eye focus on God's purpose rather than man's desire. So she acknowledges God's sovereignty. When we go to prayer in the midst of our affliction, the best place to begin is by acknowledging God's sovereignty. That what I'm in the midst of has a plan. And what I'm in the midst of, God knows about, God cares about, and God will walk us through. In those dark nights of the soul, it can feel as if God is distant and far. But knowing that God is sovereign and faithful frees us to come before him saying, God, you are greater than I am and I cannot possibly comprehend what you are doing, but I trust you. Doesn't make it easier. It doesn't make it less painful. But I can go confidently before the Lord. The other element that we see here is humility. Hannah actually refers to herself as the Lord's servant. Stephen Cole says this, it says, but it's significant that Hannah was the first to address God in prayer with the title of Lord of hosts. The truth is, is that in the Old Testament, the first person that refers to God in person as Lord of hosts is Hannah. And it's essential. See, it emphasizes the fact that God is the sovereign of the universe who rules all the powers of heaven and earth, visible and invisible. If that's who God is, then learning to come to him in prayer is not just a nice but impractical and impotent thing to do when it comes to dealing with our problems. Prayer is our means of access to the all-sufficient God who alone can meet our needs. He's the, the prayer is the means of access to the all-sufficient God who alone can meet our needs. I love that definition by Stephen Cole. So he comes, she comes acknowledging God's sovereignty and she comes with humility. I think a lot of times when we're frustrated by what God's doing and we go to God in prayer, we don't come with humility but we come with an attitude of pride. It's masked by expectation. If I just have enough faith then God will do this. The faith is then inherently mine and inherently me. 
The faith has to come from Christ who is at work within me and he is developing that faith so that I might trust him. And part of that faith acknowledges that God is greater and that his way is better and that he will do things according to his plan in his timing, his way. The very essence of faith in God's grace is saying, I don't have really anything to offer you, God, at all except my life. And only then I'm offering my life so that you might take my life and give me your new life. The third aspect of that prayer is that he makes, she makes this request with the Lord's purpose in mind. And we spoke about that. But Psalm 55, says this, Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Lamentations 3, 24 through 25, and I want to encourage you to write that passage down. Lamentations 3, 24 through 25 says this, And I love it. It says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. The Lord is good to the soul that seeks him. Listen, when we're broken and we are on our knees seeking the Lord with nothing else left, the Lord is good to us. He does not take that for granted. He does not use that against us. He is good to us. And it's exactly where he wants us, which is on our knees before him. Now notice here, God desires us to come to him in prayer. But the next thing here is, even more important. Hannah comes and she begins praying and it says that she's continuing to pray before the Lord and that Eli the priest observes her and because she's praying in her heart and she only, he only sees her lips moving, he assumes that she's drunk. Now sometimes we look at that passage and think, gosh, Eli, I pray when I'm in my heart and people probably see me moving my mouth all the time and I talk to myself a whole lot. I hope people don't think that I'm drunk. Now what you need to know is that in those days, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were corrupt priests. And we'll find out later in the first Samuel that, in fact, in, in the next couple weeks, that these priests were corrupt. They were bringing in prostitutes into the doors. It was natural for Eli to believe that she was just one of these other drunken women that was prostituting herself with the priests. And so she looks and she says, do not count me as one of the worthless women. That's what he sa- she's saying. I- I'm pouring out my soul. I didn't have drink or strong drink. I'm pouring out my soul to the Lord. And once Eli hears this, And here's her explanation. In verse 17, he says something. He says, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Well, here's the thing. 
Eli was the priest. And he's actually here, this is better seen as a blessing. And that blessing, in one sense, he's actually saying what is about to occur. But he's also saying, he's also praying with her. It's better translated, may the God, may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. See, Eli's interceding on behalf of Hannah. The truth is, is today, we don't have this imperfect priest who looks at us and says, hey, look, you're drunk because you're pouring out our heart and soul to God. But we have a priest who understands, and that priest is Jesus Christ. And, And so what God desires us to know, one, he desires us to come to him in prayer, but then we're to embrace the fact that God's high priest, Jesus, intercedes on our behalf. That should grant us confidence. God's high priest intercedes on our behalf. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Here's what he's saying. No matter how far God seems away, no matter how distant in that moment it may feel, no matter how dark the day may seem, When we cry out to God as followers of Christ, we have a mediator, we have one that is interceding on our behalf, and that is Jesus Christ every time. And this is what it means. It means that every prayer that you offer to the Lord is heard. It doesn't mean that God is out there someplace and you're going, gosh, I'm I'm crying out to the Lord, does he hear me? And the answer is instantaneously, yes. Because he's interceding on our behalf. This is fantastic news. Jesus went to the cross to die for us. He took our sin, he took our shame, and he buried it on the cross with his death. And then he rose again and he gave new life to each of us. And as a part of that, Jesus goes before the throne of God and mediates on our behalf all the time. And he's interceding for us. This is an awesome thing. This is the God that we serve. And so in the midst of affliction, when we feel like God is distant and his prayer, our prayers are not being heard, we're being pointed right back to the high priest so that we might know that our prayers are being heard and brought before the throne of grace as often as needed. As followers of Christ, that should make us rejoice. That's the confidence that he wants us to have. I want to encourage you to just write this verse down. Hebrews 7, verses 23 through 25. says this. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he holds this priesthood permanently. That is Jesus. Because he continues forever. 
Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now listen, when Hannah heard the words of Eli, her soul was encouraged that she had been heard, that, it, the, that she had gone before the priest and the priest had, had actually blessed her and she knew that she was no longer alone and she knew that she was understood and she could go in peace and rejoice and it said that she was no longer sad. Why? Because she knew that she had somebody else interceding on her behalf. We have that with Jesus. Why can we have joy in the midst of trial? Because we have a Savior who is interceding on our behalf all the time. And we can rejoice in that. Next thing we see here, the first is that God desires us in the midst of affliction to come to him in prayer. In the midst of affliction, God's high priest is interceding on our behalf. And then finally, God's blessing is often unforeseen and reminds us of his goodness. God's blessing is often unforeseen and reminds us of his goodness. Now what's interesting about this is Hannah goes home. And the text implies that she didn't immediately get pregnant, but in time, she did become pregnant. The thing about it was Hannah continued to worship the Lord even when she didn't see the prayer answered her way. But then God brings about this unforeseen blessing. Now what's unique about this unforeseen blessing is Hannah thought that she was getting a son. And so she names this son I have asked, I have asked for him from the Lord. Every time that she looked at Samuel was a reminder. Every time that she spoke his name was a reminder. Every time she simply heard his present was a reminder of God's goodness and mercy directed towards her. And so when we experience God's blessing, it's to be a reminder of God's goodness. When we see God answer prayer, or we see God do things where God didn't answer prayer, and we begin to understand why he didn't, we actually see his goodness. But what's amazing is that blessing is even more unforeseen. I remember somebody a long time ago saying that the things that are important in an hour, a year from now, are the things that are often most least important. Meaning this, the things that we stress about in the moment are often not the things that really have significant value or significant importance in our life in the grand scheme of things. In, in the same way, Hannah thought she was getting a son and she just was going to deliver this son over for the purpose of the the priest. What she didn't necessarily see was that God had chosen her when she felt like that she was a worthless or unimportant woman. God had chosen her 
to be the mother of the future prophet and priest of Israel that would usher in the kingdom, that would usher in the king that God would anoint over his people. She didn't merely have the blessing of having a son, but she had the blessing of being used by God in a radical way for his purpose. She had a son that was a reminder to the nation of Israel that the nation of Israel was not forgotten by God. See, the Israelites had cried out in affliction, and when they cried out in affliction, God heard them and delivered them from Egypt. In the same way as Hannah is crying out, God's deliverance is clear. Years ago, I had a couple in my life. Their names were Al and Helen Gallo, and both of them have gone home to be with the Lord. But Al and Helen Gallo were a family in our church that I grew up with. They had desired to have children, and they were never able to have children. And it was something that was deep within their own heart to have these children. And so it was that as we began growing, my sister and myself, and this couple would come, and even though I had grandparents in the church, they would serve as other grandparents. They would come in, and they would take us places, and they would be a part of it, and we'd go, and I can remember sitting in their house. You know, you have those images as a kid where you're, it was like this green shag carpet and, um, and um, wood paneling. And, um, and so I can remember sitting in their house and just sitting and listening to them. And they would minister. Little did I know that's what they were doing, but they would minister to us. And my sister and I, we had this special relationship. And Al went to a baseball game and I remember him walking in and he handed me a 1974 Oakland A signed baseball with all of the signatures. Now, when he handed it to me, I didn't really know what it meant, but it was important to him. And so I remember taking that and just these acts of kindness that they would continue to do throughout our lives. Well, I thought that my sister and I were the only two special kids that they had invested in. When they died about 12 years ago, they died about a year apart of one another. They were both in their early 90s, but the memorial service was packed, and it wasn't packed with peers, it was packed with people my age. And what we began to find was that these people had invested in the kids of this church, and these kids were theirs, and they had ministered to their hearts. They had brought the love of Christ to these kids. Now, that may not be everybody's story, but it's to say that God still had a plan in the midst of all of that. As much as they, they longed for something different, God then took that and used that, and their instrument and, and discipleship into our own lives was huge. And it was this 10 or 12 of us that they had just grabbed and taken hold of and began to just minister to.
I think if you ask them today about their lives, they would say that their lives were full and rich in Christ. They had embraced the unforeseen blessing, not only not having their own children, but of being able to invest in the lives of many children. It didn't take away the pain or the sting of their own loss, but they were able to embrace it with joy and to move forward in the purpose that God had for them. The blessings that God brings are often unforeseen. They're often not the way that we desire them to be answered. I know in my own life, there are times that I would love for my body to work the way that it once did. And yet, if I were to be truthful, that thorn in my flesh makes me dependent on Christ in a way that I was never before. The fact that I can connect with people who are experiencing trial and ailment and understand those dark nights of the soul is actually a blessing. So how, does, how do they respond then? And what's our response then to God's blessing and unforeseen blessing? Well, the truth is, is that we see a great, wonderful picture with Hannah. The response is one of obedience and sacrifice. Obedience and sacrifice. I want to encourage you to write this verse down, Psalm 51, 16 through 17. And this is what it says. It says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. What is the Lord looking for from us? When we see his blessing in our life, when we see the unforeseen blessing that's at work, when we see the blessing that we were expecting, which we rejoice and we go, thank you, Lord, that you delivered in that way, it should move us towards obedience and sacrifice. Not for outward appearances, but that our heart is one that is committed to God and desires to seek the things of God in obedience and is willing to say, I will let go everything for you, God. Everything is yours. Philippians 3.8 says this, and I think it's a powerful verse because we live in a culture that says, listen, once something's been given, it shouldn't be taken away. And once I have something, it shouldn't be removed. And yet God is the one who gives and takes away. And when God calls us to him, it is that we are to forsake other things for him. And so when God calls us out to step or to step, It says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's what it means. A sacrificial life 
when we see God's goodness and we experience his blessing, it should move us to obedience and a life of sacrifice before him. The gospel of Christ was not a message of easiness. The gospel of Christ was a message of living a surrendered life in the power and work of Jesus. And when we understand God's sovereignty, we can go before the throne boldly. We can come to God in prayer regardless of our affliction. And we are to know that we have a great high priest who is answering everything that we are praying. And that we have been heard. And then we can rejoice that God provides blessing, even unforeseen ones, even ones that may take a while to be known. And they are a tremendous reminder of his goodness. And so may our affliction be the tool that takes us off of ourself and places us in the hands and authority of God. May it be the place that we find comfort knowing that he desires us to come to him in prayer. That his high priest, Jesus Christ, our high priest, is interceding on behalf of us. And that his blessings are often unforeseen and a reminder of his goodness directed towards us. Amen? Amen. Lord God, as we just prepare our hearts this morning for communion... May this be, may this be the foundation in the midst of our affliction. May you, God, remind us continually of your goodness. And may we know that you desire for us to come to you. May we remember that we have a high priest that hears our prayer and is interceding on our behalf. And may we recognize the true blessing that comes. Not the one that we want to see, but the one that you want us to see. And may we rejoice in the goodness the work of your cross. And we ask this in your name. Amen.